Antediluvian means pre-flood, before the flood. In some ways, those uh, antediluvian days were very different from our days. The world was very different back then. If you remember last year when we discussed Genesis chapter 1, verse 7, where it said that God made the firmament, the atmosphere, and he divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which he placed above the firmament or above the atmosphere of the world. And we talked about the fact that this very well may have created a water vapor canopy around the earth. And that produced kind of a greenhouse effect worldwide. Well, that combined with um, the high atmospheric pressure that that water vapor would have created on the earth, also combined with the absence of mutation producing radiations. You know, that water vapor canopy would have protected the earth and the people and the animals on the earth from the, the ultraviolet rays from the sun which are what age people so much. Well, recent studies in biomedical research have, have determined that higher atmospheric pressure plus the absence of those mutation-producing radiation waves from the sun contribute to longevity, contribute to people living longer. And then if you take into account also the purity of the human genetic uh, system and the bloodstream in those very early days of mankind, and the absence of disease-producing organisms, which took very many years to gradually develop. If you put all those things together, can you understand why people live so much longer than they do today in the post-flood world? As a matter of fact, we believe that the water vapor canopy is what burst during the time when it started to rain for the very first time. That caused the rain to come down and caused the flood, as well as the waters underneath the earth breaking up. And so once that water vapor canopy was removed from around the earth, you will notice after the flood that the ages of people that we read about in the scripture start declining slowly and steadily. I mean, they get they don't live as long, and it just goes right down to where we are today. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong then about reading that people back in those days lived to be 900, 800 years old. I think the average age um, in the genealogies that we'll be looking at in chapters 4 and 5 was 912 years of age. There was one man who didn't live quite as long as everybody else. That was Enoch. He only lived to be 365. But why was that? Because he didn't die, the Lord just took him. So although people live longer in the tropical terrarium type of climate of the pre-flood or the antediluvian world, there were many ways in which they were very, the people themselves were very much like those who populate our world today. I mean, they weren't brutish cavemen running around clubbing their wives on the head and pulling them back to the cave, you know, the sort of picture that the evolutionists would try to give us. They were very, very similar to you and I today. And this is interesting in light of the fact that according to the Lord Jesus, the world would be very similar, he said, to the pre-flood world in the days which will precede his return, his second coming. Remember what he said in Matthew 24, 27? He compared the last days to the days of who? Noah. And the days of Noah, we're talking about the people we're going to be looking at today, those who lived right before the flood. 
And that one statement alone, made by the very Son of God himself, should really entice us to study chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the book of Genesis very carefully to see if indeed that world, that pre-flood world, was similar to our day. Because if our day sounds like the days of Noah, then the Lord's return is at hand, right? Now, in Genesis chapters 4 and 5, we find two ancestral lines traced from humanity's first parents, Adam and Eve. There is, beginning in chapter 4, verse 17, through verse 24, which is what we're going to look at this morning, there is the line of Cain. Cain, as we learned in our lesson last week, was by way of his own choice, his own free choice, his own willful choice, he was the firstborn spiritual son of who? Satan, the devil. Of course, he was the firstborn physical son of Adam, but he was the firstborn spiritual son of Satan. Because he forsook the teaching of his parents regarding the proper way to approach God, which was through an innocent sin substitute, you know, a sacrificial death of an innocent animal, which had to shed its blood and die in his place. And because he also refused to repent of his many additional sins, such as um, pride and envy and anger and bitterness and murder and lying to God and disrespect to God, because of these things, his heart was hardened. Instead of mastering sin, what happened? Sin mastered him. Genesis 4.16 tells us some very sad words. It says, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. I don't know if it's significant or not that it tells us about Adam and Eve that God drove them out. Here, it sounds like it's Cain's own choice. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, in the remainder of chapter 4, we learn, therefore, of the secular humanistic society which evolved from Cain and from his descendants. In the first part of our two-part study on the Canaanites and the Sethites, this is part one of this study, we are going to look today just at the Canaanites. Did I say Canaanites? I don't mean, I don't mean Canaanites. Canaanites. Sounds like dogs, doesn't it? Canaanites. The Canaanites and the Sethites. Today we're just going to look at verses 17 to 24, which deal with the Canaanites. Next week we'll talk about the godly line of Adam's descendants when we look at chapter 5, the Sethites. Okay? But if the ancestral record of Adam just stopped here at Genesis 4, 24... That would be very fatal news for you and I because it would appear that Satan had a very early victory over God and that God's promise to Adam and Eve that uh, there would be a coming redeemer through the seed of the woman, which we read about in, in, uh, I keep saying Revelation, in Genesis 3.15, remember the proto-evangelium, that promise would not have occurred. After all, things to this point of chapter 4, verse uh, 24, would look pretty bleak. Actually, to the point where you and I have come in our study, things look pretty bleak because Satan had succeeded very early in winning the firstborn human son to his side of the conflict with God. He had won over Cain. 
And he had also succeeded in a relatively short period of time in murdering the second-born human son, right? Abel. So it would look like Satan had a very early victory. And yet we know that God always, always keeps his promises, doesn't he? He's a promise-keeping God. He would, as he said, he would preserve the godly line of the woman's seed so that his own son would be born in the course of time. Therefore, what did he do to keep his promise? He gave Adam and Eve yet another righteous son in place of Abel, and this righteous son's name was Seth. And we'll look at Seth and his godly line when we look at chapter 4, verse 25, to the end of chapter 5 next week. Okay? But today we're going to look at the Cainites, and for that, um, I've divided it into two sections. We're going to look, first of all, at Cain's secular society, and then we'll look at Lamech's, that's one of his, aunts, his uh, descendants, we'll look at Lamech's sword song. So let's begin by looking at Cain's secular society, and for that I'll read verses 17 to 22. It says, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Erid, and Erid begat, begat Mehujael, and Mehujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him <clears throat> two wives, and the name of one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bare Jabel. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubalcane, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubalcane was Nama. All right, I'll stop right there. <clears throat> The Lord God kept his promise to Cain. Remember the promise over in uh, verse 15. He kept his promise to Cain by preserving him from being slain by any would-be assassins who might attempt to avenge the murder of Cain's brother Abel. But Cain became a perpetual wanderer and a fugitive on the earth. Uh, and that was according to God's curse on him over in verse 12. Although we find in verse 17, the first verse I read here, that he built a city which he named after who? His son Enoch. And this is not the Enoch that was translated to heaven. This is a different Enoch. Cain built a city and he, he named it after his son Enoch. Yet there is no indication that he remained in this city, that Cain remained in this city. God had destined Cain to be a fugitive for all the remaining years of his life, and therefore we can be sure that he was. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a, a little bit. In fact, we find that Cain left absolutely nothing behind, neither in this world or in eternity. He left nothing behind. The only things that he was responsible for establishing was a city and a family, and both were completely wiped out at what time? The time of the flood, completely removed. Cain, who was an apostate, 
because he had deliberately turned his back on the God he knew existed. Therefore, he was an apostate. He left absolutely nothing behind at all of any lasting value except a very bad testimony here in the eternal word of God. Left a very bad name behind. I mean, all of his descendants were completely wiped out in the flood. The last descendants from his line that we read about are Lamech and his children. That's the end of the line of Cain because, you know, nothing went on into the, the world after the flood. And the city he built was also destroyed. And we know, because he was an apostate and he wasn't truly a child of God, he was a child of Satan, that he laid up, stored up for himself no treasures where? In heaven. So he, he has a very sad, sad record. In Genesis 4.17, we come to a topic now which has provoked the curiosity of probably more people than almost any other subject in Scripture. Saturday night, my husband had to speak at a, a Sunday school banquet, and we were sitting there with two pastors, and I asked, asked both of them, I said, do you know what the number one question from people is about the Bible? Because this is what the commentators had said over and over again. And they both knew the answer. They said, yes, who did Cain marry? And I said, that's exactly right. As a matter of fact, personally, I was woken up once at 2 o'clock in the morning with this very question posed to me. I mean, you know, I'm a night person, but I'm not quite that night of a person. <laughs> and so at 2 o'clock in the morning when I picked up the phone, I said, hello, I was expecting some kind of an emergency. This fell on the other end who my husband was witnessing to. He said, who did Cain marry? <laughs> and I said, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I really don't care who he married. <laughs> but I got out my, my stuff and I told him who Cain who Cain probably married. This is, even though this prop, supposed problem has been answered many, many times by our conservative Bible scholars, yet it is still used by thousands of people as their number one excuse for denying the inerrant, uh, the, the inerrancy of the scripture. Isn't that sad? Well, the Bible can't be true because Cain would not have been able to get married, as it says here in verse 17. Well, in order to um, address this issue, we need to take into consideration several factors. First of all, Genesis 5-4, if you look over there, tells us that um, other sons and daughters were born to Adam and Eve, in addition to Cain and Abel and Seth. Only Cain, Abel, and Seth are mentioned because they're the key figures here. You know, the key figures in the ungodly line and the key figures in the godly lines, which issued from Adam and Eve, and that's what the Lord is focusing in on. Okay, so they're the only ones that are mentioned by name, but we know that they had other sons and daughters. And we have no way of knowing how many other sons and daughters, but think about this. Um, they, didn't, they were pure, okay? Their bloodstream was pure. They, they were the mo most magnificent um, creatures this world has ever seen. And, and, they were, and God had told them to be fruitful and multiply. And they had no birth control, and they lived to be in their 900s, and so menopause, menopause probably didn't hit till about 750, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine how many children they could have had? Just, and then their children, you know, how old does a girl have to be before she can have a child? 
12 or 13. Just think of how they, they have estimated that by the time of the flood, there could have easily been 7 million people on the earth. All right, so they, we have no idea how many other sons and daughters could have been born, even perhaps between Cain and Abel, but also between um, Cain and Seth. Because we are told that when Adam and Eve had Seth, they were 130 years old. So between Cain and Seth, there's 130 years. Well, there was a lot of children born in between those years. No birth control, all right? Lots of children. It's been pointed out that if during the lifetime of Adam, and Adam lived to be 930, all right? If only one half of the children who would normally be born, like in our world, if only one half of those grew to adulthood, and probably in the antediluvian world, all of them grew to adulthood. Because remember, there weren't any diseases, there wasn't a whole lot of sickness, and all, all sorts of things, you know, that were much more beneficial than our day. And if only one half of those who grew to adulthood got married, and probably most of them got married, and if only one half of those who got married had children, and probably all of them had children, and many of them, yet even taking this half, half, half proposed rate, Adam could have lived to have seen more than one million of his own descendants. And we think that this is being very conservative, so it could have been many more than that. And still, however, you still have to go, you have to admit, still, in order to get the population process multiplying, at least one of Adam's sons would have had to have married his own sister. Now, whether that son was Cain or not, we don't know. But there would have at least have had to have been one son of Adam and Eve who married one of his sisters. And then you see after that, let's say it wasn't Cain who married his sister. Let's say it was Joe. Jo oh, I shouldn't use Joe. <laughs> let's say it was Bob married one sister. Well, then Cain could marry one of their children who would be his niece. All right? But, you know, that was, that was the way that... Um, that God's, that was God's divine plan for beginning the human race. And therefore, because it was God's plan, it was a good plan, and it was a right plan. And it's not a plan for you and I to, to question. I mean, if we want to get all hung up about the fact that one son had to marry uh, one of his sisters, think about this. Who did Adam marry? He married his own rib. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. We have to remember that in those days, back in those days, the human race had not yet experienced mutant genes, all right, in the genetic system. So no genetic harm would have resulted from close marriages, as we find frequently happens, of course, in, with incestuous relationships in our day. We know that even after the flood, Abraham could marry his own half-sister, and it was still okay, and there was no danger anticipated from their offspring. You see, it wasn't until many years later, in the days of Moses, that the human genetic system had devolved and it had degenerated 
to the point where close interbreeding was genetically dangerous. And so then God prohibited such things in the Mosaic law. And by then, people had many more choices on who they could marry. So that was then considered incestuous. But in the early days, it was not, and it was God's plan for beginning the human race. So not only did Cain marry, but there was also a large number of people who apparently willingly chose to populate the city that he built. You know, part of the reason that Cain might have chosen to build a city, it does tell us, you know, in verse 17, he builded a city. Maybe that was in, in an attempt to defy the curse which God had put on him to be a perpetual, what, wanderer and fugitive. You know, maybe he said, well, I'm not going to do what God said. I'm not going to wander around forever. I'm going to build a city, and this is where I'm going to plant my roots. This is where I'm going to live. Well, it is interesting. We don't see this in the English, but in the Hebrew, the verb for build, builded, where it says he builded a city, that's given in the indefinite, which means that literally it means was building that he was building a city. And this suggests to us that Cain began the city, but he never finished it. You know, somebody else had to carry on the work. Perhaps his son Enoch had to carry on the work for him. Uh, he may have only just, you know, initiated or begun the city. And after all, that is what his son's name means. If you'd like to make a note of that, Enoch means began or initiated. However, we do know that uh, Cain did have to return to wandering. How can I say that? Why do I say that? Why, did, why do I say that he returned to wandering? Because God's word said that he was going to be a perpetual wanderer. So I know, without even having to be told, that he was not able to put roots in that city and that he had to uh, continue to be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth for the rest of his days because I know that God's word does not return void. Evolutionary anthropologists teach that, you know, Stone Age cavemen began to become civilized when they finally came out from rural settings, you know, and they began to live in cities. They say that this is when finally our primitive ancestors became sort of civilized, when they stopped banging each other on the head and decided they'd get along <laughs> enough to dwell together in a city. But, of course, according to their timeline, they say that this took man about a million years before he finally developed urban life. But what does the Bible tell us? That's why you can't be an evolutionist and say you believe in the Bible and, you know, and compromise the two. The Bible tells us that the very first city <clears throat> was built by the very first son of Adam and Eve. That was not a million years, was it, by any means? And uh, what we find as we read chapter 4 here is a culture which is very, very different from what the uh, imaginations of the evolutionists would tell us. You know, it's far from brutish cavemen-type creatures running around with clubs. Now, in naming his son Enoch, which, as I mentioned, means initiated or begun or dedicated, it's very possible that Cain was hoping that Enoch his son would bring him a new beginning in life. The problem, however, was that the new beginning that Cain wanted was not with God. 
He wasn't seeking for a new beginning. He could have repented and gone back to God, and God would have had mercy and forgiven him. But the problem was Cain wanted a new beginning with the world, not with God. Cain should have been seeking a new beginning with God, but he was instead trying to find the answer to his restlessness and his rootlessness and his empty existence where? In this world. And can you find your answer to that void in your heart, the rootlessness, the restlessness that you might experience as an that you do experience as an unsaved person, can you find the meaning in this world? You can't. This world does not satisfy. I don't care what you try. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. Perhaps Cain wanted to build, create his own kingdom on earth, you know, where his own son ruled instead of God's son as Satan might have whispered into his ear. Isn't that what men try to do? Don't they try to build their own kingdom here on earth? Cain might have thought that, you know, if God was going to be so cruel as to deprive his parents and all of their offspring, you know, of that beautiful paradise garden, the Garden of Eden, just because they ate, you know, one time some insignificant fruit. If God was going to be that kind of God, then... He could just stay to himself. Cain had nothing, didn't want to have anything to do with him. He would simply build his own paradise on earth. He would build a city, and he would name that city or dedicate that city uh, for himself by naming it after his son. You see, he, was, he decided he would have his good things in the here and now, and he would do it his way not God's way. So Cain cho chose to live for the honor of this world and not for the honor of God. He chose to glory in the work of his own doing, just as he had when he offered the fruit basket to the Lord instead of the right kind of uh, sacrificial animal. He decided that he would glory in his own works, and so he attempted to build a city. He continued in the faith in his false religion that he had created. And there were obviously others who also had chosen to forsaken God, right? He wasn't the only one. He's the only one we read by name. But there were obviously others, and they joined Cain in populating the very first city that this earth has ever known, and that was the city of Enoch. You know, we've been talking about a lot of firsts. Well, this is another one of those firsts. The, what You can ask your children or grandchildren, what was the first city ever built on earth? And it was the city of Enoch. Now, in Genesis uh, 4, 18 to 22, we find a list of the primary descendants of Cain. Now, of course, we know that Cain had other children besides Enoch, just as Enoch had other children besides Erid, and so on and so on, so on. The few names listed were those which were divinely chosen by the Holy Spirit in order to give us some insight into the kinetic society that had developed in the days from Cain himself to the time when God would tolerate no more ungodliness and consequently he sent the, the flood. So the names we find here in uh, verses 18 to 22 tell us a whole lot about the antediluvian, antediluvian society and what it was like. And as we look at what it was like, remember in the back of your mind to see if that sounds a lot like our day and age. Is our day and age as in the days of Noah? Because these are people who preceded Noah. 
Okay? So that remember that as we look at it. But the, the names listed for us are Enoch, Irid, Mehujael, Methusael, and Lamech, and then three of Lamech's sons, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal Cain, and one of his daughters, a daughter by the name of Nama. And as I said, a great deal about the antediluvian history can be um, told, taught to us through a study of these um, names of the descendants and also the little bit of information we learn about them. Now, names in Scripture, if you've been in any of my studies for very long, you know that names in Scripture and numbers in Scripture are very important, right? Names in Scripture are very important. However, there is a slight problem for scholars when they're trying to determine some of the Hebrew names. And the reason for this is because the written Hebrew does not contain vowels. Can you imagine? It doesn't have any vowels. So generally they rely on the context of a, a word in Hebrew to tell them what the word means. However, with names, you see, the context doesn't really give you any additional clues. At least not always. And so that's why when I'm going to give you some of the meanings for some of these names, we have more than one. I'll say, like, it could be this, this, or this. And that's the reason for that. All right, the name Irid has been interpreted to mean either fugitive by some townsman. In other words, I think that means he lived in the city. Or wild ass by others. And regardless of which meaning is correct, what does this tell us about this man? It tells us that he, uh, just like his father Enoch and his grandfather Cain, was following in the footsteps of the ungodly. He was another spiritual son of the, of the serpent, a seed of the serpent. Well, the next two names, Mahujael and Methusael, we don't know the meaning for Methusael, it's, been, it's very doubtful. They can't quite figure out what that word means. But Mahujael, most of them agree it means smitten of God. Those two names are interesting because they both contain at the end of the name the little abbreviation E-L. You see that? And you know what that stands for? God's name, Elohim. Elohim is the, the number one name for God used throughout the Old Testament. It was the name for God we saw all through chapter 1 of Genesis. And the, therefore, the names of Mehujael and Methusael may tell us that the ungodly seed of Cain, just like Cain himself, were, quote-unquote, religious. Often, you know, very bad and wicked men are who are lovers of themselves more than they are lovers of God, they still like to maintain a form of godliness, don't they? Even though they deny the power of God. There's a big difference between the form of godliness and the power of godliness. You can have a form of godliness. You can go to church and appear to be very pious and religious and godly. But if you can only receive the power of godliness when you are born again and you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and have a true relationship with God. Even if the descendants of Cain did still attempt to have some semblance of religious respect for God, by those names, that flickering flame completely was quenched by the son of Methusael, whose name was Lamech. And Lamech in Hebrew means powerful, conqueror, or wild man. How do you like that one? And indeed, in this seventh son, 
This is, that the, I mean, seventh generation. He's a seventh generation from Adam, Lamech. In him, we find a type of the lawless one of the last days. And who is that? The Antichrist. So here we have a type, a picture, a prophetic picture. After all, this is the ungodly line of the serpent. We have a picture of the Antichrist, the powerful, conquering, wild man of the last days. Lamech, in Lamech, was the lust and the lawlessness which will come to full fruition in the beast that comes out of the sea in Revelation chapter 13, who will be Satan's masterpiece, counterfeit, false messiah, the Antichrist he's most commonly known as. Well, it's interesting to notice when we get next week into chapter 5, which contains the godly line, the Sethites, we will find that the seventh generation from Adam was, who knows? See, the seventh generation from Adam in the ungodly line is this wild man, Lamech. Well, who's the seventh generation from, no, not Noah, good guess, Enoch. Okay, not not Cain's son, Enoch, but Enoch, the man who didn't die, who was raptured to heaven. And what does he give us a picture of? What is he a type of? The rapture of the church, because he didn't have to die. He was just taken. He walked with God. Well, you know, as, as the church, we're the ones who walk with God through his son. And so what does that tell us? Both are seventh generations from Adam Therefore, both occur at the same time. Well, the same generation that will see the rapture of the church is going to be the generation that sees the rise of the wild man, the powerful conqueror, Lamech. And I wonder if there's any significance in the fact that it's seventh generation. Very interesting. Think about. Okay. So during the lifespan of Lamech, the the world saw a quote-unquote new age in which science and culture and philosophy, technology and morals all took a giant step forward in active rebellion against the creator God of heaven. In Genesis 4.19, we learn that Lamech was the first bigamist. Isn't it wonderful to have all these firsts? The first... First time we saw sin was last week. First time we saw the first human question, remember that? Am I my brother's keeper? And now we have the first bigamist, also the first city. All these are sort of um, indications that things were not going the godly way, were they? Well, at least next week we'll get to talk about the first revival and some of the good news. But he's the first bigamist. In other words, as far as the written record is concerned, concerned, he was the first man to to uh, practice polygamy. He took two wives for himself. You see, it only took six generations for the ungodly seed of Cain to ignore God's ordained principle for monogamy, one man for one woman. Only six generations from Cain who began the ungodly seed. The new age of Cain's secular humanistic society was one of moral degeneration. Lamech felt himself powerful enough to introduce to the world a new morality. Boy, if that isn't something we hear about today, right? The testimony that this man left behind 
tells us that uh, we know that the secular society of the pre-flood world was focused on lust and on beauty. And this is very strongly suggested to us by way of the names of the wives that he selected for himself. The name of his first wife was Ada, A-D-A-H, and that means ornamental, uh, attractive, or beauty. She was a knockout, in other words. And the name of his second wife, Zilla, means seductress or shade, which probably refers uh, to the color or the shadow of either her hair or her skin. Lamech, you see, was obviously controlled by both the lust of his eyes and the lust of his flesh. And he was also full of the pride of life, as we'll see when we look at verses 23 and 24, when he sang his famous sword song. So he had all three of those things that are mentioned that are of the world and not of the Father in 1 John 2.16. Cain may have been the founder, or I guess was the founder, of the first false religion. Cain was the founder of the first false religion, but Lamech, it appears, was the founder of the first cult. He was the founder of the cult that worships beauty and sex and self. Does that sound a little bit like our world today? Does it sound like maybe we are fearfully similar to the days of Noah? I'm afraid it does. Well, I'm not afraid because I know the Lord, and so I'm going to be out of here before the tribulation. Well, if there is anything that describes our society today in the 21st century, it is man's obsession with the cult of beauty, sex, and self. This ungodly trinity, that's what I call it, an ungodly trinity, <clears throat> is the central focus of advertising, isn't it? And just open up just about any magazine. Uh, it is the central focus of the television and the entertainment worlds. It is the trinity which is worshipped by far more people than the true trinity of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you doubt that, think about some of the answers um, or just think about some of the following truths. Most people spend more time looking into a mirror than they do with God. Most people spend more time picking out their clothes and dressing, just getting dressed, than they do with God. Most people spend more money on clothes and beauty aids and jewelry and hair than they give to God. Most people spend more time watching sex uh, scenes on television and on videos and on internet now and at movie theaters than they spend with God. Most people spend more time reading, thinking, or talking about sex, pleasure, beauty, and self than they spend in God's Word or in a Christ-centered church. And most people would rather be considered handsome or beautiful or sexy or powerful or popular than they would to be considered godly. Do you agree? And don't think of your friends in the church. I'm talking about the, well, even there it's a problem, but out there in the world. Those statements are true sad to say. Although there is nothing wrong, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with people trying to look as nice as they can. 
I mean, we all try to do that, you know. We, we spend longer time maintaining, right, <laughs> as we said this morning, Denise and I. Yet it shouldn't be the focus of our lives. <clears throat> Christians especially are not to attempt to draw attention to the flesh or to be a temptation to the lust of the eyes uh, by, by um, the way they dress or by the way they don't dress. Anything that causes the thoughts of other people to focus upon bodies is not godly. The Christian's objective should be to focus attention on not the flesh, but on Christ. He is the one who is to be, to be so dominant in our lives that people, you know, they don't stumble over us. They see him in us. They should see a sweet, caring loving, quiet meekness with an inner strength of spirit within us. And, and that should be so evident that they are not drawn to our bodies and to our appearance, but they are drawn to the one who lives within us, right? Christ. Favor is the aforementioned children of Lamech, just like their father, also give us a great deal of insight into the type of secular godless society of Cain's descendants right before the flood. And this, as we'll see, is far different, as I said before, from the evolutionist description of early cavemen. The sons of Lamech, now they're only eight generations removed from Adam. They tell us that the society of the pre-flood age was very advanced, if not morally. They weren't advanced morally, but they were advanced agriculturally, uh, commercially, culturally, and technologically. The names of the three sons of Lamech, which are mentioned for us, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal Cain, all originate from the same root word. They all come from the Hebrew word, which means to produce. And boy, oh boy, they definitely were producers. <clears throat> These were talented young men, or old men. Uh, it's interesting, we don't have any of the ages in Cain's line. You'll notice that. None of the ages when they gave birth to their sons and none of the ages of when they died. And we'll talk about why that is next week. Well, Jabel, whose name means wanderer uh, and can also mean the producer, he was the son of Lamech by his first wife, Ada. And we're told that Jabel was the father of such as dwell in tents and of such as have cattle. Apparently, Jabel was responsible for devising the nomadic tent, you know, a tent that he could carry on his back or on his donkeys made it possible to carry his home with him as he domesticated and con commercially produced cattle. And the Hebrew word for cattle there tells us that, uh, indicates that this was more than just cows. He raised cows, but it also includes camels and donkeys as well as goats and other livestock. Jabel was not only very wealthy, but he was famous because he's referred to as the father. You notice that? The father of tent makers, as well as the father of nomadic type ranchers, such as he was. Who else was a nomadic type of rancher that we read about later on in Genesis? Abraham, right. Also very wealthy. 
Now, it's interesting that the Hebrew word for cattle can also mean possession or to acquire. And what this might mean is that Jabel not only invented a new type of prosperous lifestyle, but he dominated it. He was a real marketeer. You know, he, he possessed it. In our language, it would mean that he cornered the market. Anyone who wanted beef or milk or a, a beast of burden or uh, skins for clothing, they had to come to him. He had a monopoly on it. You know, marketing was his specialty. It's very likely that he raised cattle for the production of meat, that men had dishonored God even further by, you know, not only marrying more than one wife, but by also disobeying him and eating meat. So when you think of of Jabel, think of money, marketing, and moo, okay, moo for the cattle. <laughs> now the second son mentioned to have been born under, with, uh, by way of Lamech's first wife, Ada, was Jubal. You know, and his name means undulator or joyful sound. And I think that's where probably the word jubilee you know, jubilee, jubilee. And it comes from Jubal, because what did he invent? What was he the father of? He was very different from his older brother uh, because Jubal became famous as the father of all such as Handel, the harp, and organ. Right. He, um, he's the inventor of music, we could say. So if you want to stick with the M's, we have money and marketing and moo and then music for Jubal. He... Um, the harp here signifies stringed instruments, and the organ speaks of actually reed instruments, such as flutes and pipes. So Jubal was the inventor of stringed and wind instruments. So the New World Order of the pre-flood days was engrossed in undulating music. That's what his name means, undulating. It helped itself muffle out any thoughts of God with its beats and its rhythms and its lively melodies of its music as it attempted to spit, uh, fill its spiritual void uh, with this sort of thing rather than the only one who can fill that spiritual void, who, of course, is God. And is that what people do today with music, especially our young, our young people? Man, they try to drown out any thoughts of God with their Boom, you know, their boom boxes, boom, 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 <laughs> undulating music. And they just, you know, that becomes their God. They use that to try to fill their emptiness instead of God. No doubt Jubal, like his brother Jabel, quickly profited as his inventions became known and uh, sought out by the sensual Cainites. Well, the only half-brother of Jabel and Jubal who we have mentioned for us in the scripture, we know they had many others, but the only other one, the only one to be mentioned was Tubal-Cain. And he was the son of Lamech by his second wife, Zillah. Instead of being the originator of mobile homes and uh, marketing like Jabel, or the originator of music like Jubal, Tubal-Cain was the founder of metallurgy. See, I stuck with my M's. Aren't you proud of me? <laughs> it says that he was an instructor in brass and iron. And literally in Hebrew, the text says that he was a forger of every cutting instrument of brass and iron. He discovered, in other words, the method of smelting and forging 
metals into all kinds of cutting instruments. Now we can imagine that such an instrument, you know, as a knife or a sword, something like that, would have been kept a very close family secret because that invention would give his amazingly talented family, you have to admit this is a talented family, right? That would give their family a definite uh, advantage of, of uh, power and supremacy over all the rest of the population if they were the only ones who had metal-made weapons. So they would be able to arm themselves with knives and, and shields and all kinds of dangerous weapons of warfare that would have been as significant in that day and age as the atomic bomb was at, at the time of World War II. Now, of course, to benefit himself, we can be sure that Tubal Cain also produced other things which he could market, you know, which he could sell. He probably wasn't too anxious to sell the weapons, but he could have made other things such as jewelry and utensils and tools and all kinds of decorative accessories that would have been, you know, very much wanted by the people. And so, you know, all three sons made that family very, very wealthy and powerful. So from Lamech's family, we learn that the days preceding the flood were days of multiple marriages, days of great commercial prosperity, days when men focused on spirit, uh, sensual pleasures. Actually, the name of Lamech's one daughter. You know, they never have daughters mentioned in these genealogies. So there must be a reason they mentioned one daughter, and her name was Nama. You know what that means? Pleasure. Again, giving us a key into that society. They were focused on sensual pleasure, both in the realm of sex and beauty and self and undulating music. They were also days of great power and materialism. Henry Morris says this in his book on the Genesis record. He said, quote, more and more modern archaeological discoveries today are verifying the high degree of technology possessed by the earliest men, thus indirectly validating this biblical testimony. You know what that says? The early men were not like they would tell us, little, you know, stupid hominids, half man, half ape, running around with no intelligence at all, little pea brains. They were advanced men, just like we read about in Genesis chapter 4. Now, one thing which is worth noting is that in the list containing the descendants of Cain, we find absolutely no mention of God, do we? No mention of God. And this will be in contrast to what we read in chapter 5. The matters which are discussed in chapter 4, the ungodly line, deal merely with the world and with cultural progress. They deal with the world's work, the world's possessions, the world's culture, aesthetic interests, the world's profits, the world's tools and instruments and weapons, the world's lusts and pleasures and focuses. Now, some of these things in and of themselves are not bad. They're not evil in themselves, but... Those who worship them and live for them in the place of worshiping and living for God, they are consequently evil, aren't they? When they, you know, materialism becomes their God or pleasure or whatever. 
It's interesting to compare, and you'll be doing this in your homework, to compare the record of Cain's descendants with those that are listed in chapter 5, Seth's descendants. In the historical record of Seth's descendants, the emphasis is not on cultural progress, although we know that, that they must have also contributed to cultural and technological progress. But no mention is made of that in chapter 5. But the emphasis in chapter 5 is on man's relationship with God. The ungodly line of the Canaanites were a people who sought to be wealthy and famous and powerful and culturally gifted and sensually fulfilled. They were a people who lived for all the gusto of this life, you know, and, and put no thought into the life to come. They had so much, you see. They were so, they were so very um, blessed with material goods and with pleasures that they thought they had no need for God. That's the greatest problem with the society we live in, isn't it? People have so much that they see no need for God. So although they lived, they were really dead. They were dead in their sins and trespasses. It's in Jeremiah 2.5. They walked after vanity and are become vain. All right, let's look real quickly at Lamech's sword song in verses 23 and 24. Now, Lamech, remember is a picture, a type of the Antichrist in his pride and power and wildness and lawlessness. Here's what he says. Uh, and Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. The ungodly pride of Cain's secular society and his sin-sick descendants apexed or climaxed in this man named Lamech. He was the father of those who were themselves the fathers of prosperity, pleasure, and power. You know? Jabel was the father of prosperity. Jubal was the father of pleasure. And we could say Tubal-Cain was the father of power. The father of that trinity, prosperity, pleasure, and power, is what? What's the father of those three things? Pride. Pride. Pride is real, really the father of all sins because wasn't it pride that caused Lucifer's fall to begin with? That was the number one sin. It was also pride which over, overcame Eve when she you know, decided that she desired to be like God. Pride got both the created angels and it got, or one-third of them, and it got Eve there in the garden. So pride is the father of all sins. If ever, ever there was a proud man, it was Lamech here in Genesis 4. And he's not to be confused with there is another Lamech over in chapter 5 who was the father of Noah. You know, you can tell these are all relatives because their names are so similar on both sides. Maybe the ungodly were trying to imitate the godly. But there's a lot of similar names. But he's not the father of Noah. 
This is uh, Lamech on the ungodly side. He climaxed the ungodliness of the antediluvian man as he boasted in a poetic song here. In the Hebrew, it's a poetic song. He's boasting of his self-sufficiency and his independence of God. This poetic song was conceitedly sung or said, whichever, to who? Who did he say it to? His two wives. He might not have been quite so bold if he was bragging and boasting in front of someone else, but he was doing this to two women. And it's called Lamech's Sword Song. Now, I know there's no mention of a sword in there, but they, the Bible commentators say that they think he had a sword in his hand, you know, a sword that his um, son had invented. So this is the first poem in the Scripture. Here again, we are another first. And this is kind of a sad commentary, isn't it? Just like the first human question was, am I my brother's keeper? The first poetic song or the first poem in the scripture is this horrible, blasphemous boast from Lamech. The sword song itself can be translated as either being about an event which had happened in the past or about something that that he would do in the future. Therefore, you know, Bible expositors debate back and forth as to whether this is about something Lamech had done or something that he would do if he was attacked by another man. Uh, now, we, we could speculate, you know, because of the great beauty of his two wives, one was named ornamental, beautiful, attractive, and the other one's name was seductress. It could be that other men were you know, making advancements towards his wives, and maybe they weren't too um, indifferent to that kind of attention. And so he gets his two wives before him, and he, he boasts this, this song, which is really a threat to them of what he would do if he caught either one of them with a young man. Well, due to the clever skills of his son, Tubal-Cain, it could be that he had, well, we know that his father would have had the advantage over other men because he would have possessed a metal weapon of some type. Perhaps he even said, as, uh, had this sword that he was swirling above his head as he gave this blasphemous boast. Um, regardless, the issue for us to see is the picture of the society which the boastful, brash, blasphemous bigamist presented by way of his proud poetry. The ungodly descendants of Cain had progressed to the pitiful state of producing a man like this, a man like Lamech. He represented a people who were proud of their own strength and not God's strength. He represented a society which engaged in multiple marriages, disregarding God's design. For monogamy, he represented a culture which boasted of its uh, murderous uh, vengeance, even over an insignificant matter. I mean, the man in here who either hurt him or, or would hurt him was—it was just a wound. It wasn't a fatal injury. And what does he say he did or would do? Kill him, just for a wound. He also demonstrated a society which boasted of its own self-sufficiency and denied any need at all for God. So he, of course, represented a society which had become lawless, a society with no real sense of justice or morality. You know, their consciences, this was actually the age of, of conscious, you know, when men were supposed to be ruled by their consciences, 
but they had they had hardened their consciences they were calloused so with a weapon of warfare probably in his hands Lamech felt so self-reliant that he actually did what Satan did he placed himself above God in his arrogant blasphemy Lamech was really crying out that if God could avenge Cain seven times then he could avenge himself 70 and sevenfold. He was essentially saying that he was perfectly capable of taking care of himself. You know, Cain, his great-great-great-grandfather, had needed God to protect him, you know, with that mark, that mysterious sign, and also with God's warning to avenge anyone who dared to touch Cain to avenge them sevenfold. Yet Lamech, with his powerful metal weapon in his hand, was saying that he could beat God's vengeance by, you know, 70 times. That was his boast. I believe that it is more than coincidence that the Lord Jesus Christ, when asked by Peter how many times a man should forgive his brother who had sinned against him, uh, that the Lord answered by saying not seven times. Remember, that was Peter's suggestion. How many times should I forgive my brother who sinned against me? Seven times? He thought he was being pretty generous. <laughs> and the Lord said, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. You see, Lamech, as I said, was a picture of an anti-Christ. He was in all ways the opposite and the antagonist of everything that Christ stood, stood for. Lamech's boast speaks of a culture which was not only saturated in egotism and in pride and a culture which had lost its reverential fear of God, but also speaks of a culture which did not even love its fellow man. You know, he's going to take the life of this young man just if he harmed him. He represents, therefore, a society completely, utterly without God, a society of hard, arrogant self-seekers. And what's really shocking to realize is how quickly a society can utterly deteriorate. Lamech was only seven generations removed from Adam, the first man, the perfect man who God had created in a perfect world. Look what it only took seven generations to create. In fact, you know, Adam was still alive at the time of Lamech. Did you know that? I won't take the time right now to, to demonstrate that to you. Maybe we'll talk about it next week. But he was still, he lived 930 years. It was easy for him to see seven generations. Uh, can you imagine how this must have broke Adam's heart to see the snowballed effect of his own sin and what the world had come to? Well, Lamech's sword song is the final word that we ever hear from any in the ungodly line of Cain. This is it, folks. This is all we hear from the ungodly people who lived before the flood. Isn't that interesting? The last thing we hear from Cain's descendants is this boastful blast. You know, God doesn't take lightly to blasphemy like that, does he? You know, he's long-suffering, but his long-suffering has a limit. And when ungodliness reached its peak, he sent judgment. So the question that I leave you with is, you know, does what we looked at in the antediluvian society, does it sound like our society today? 
If it does, could we be living in the days as Noah? The days which precede the Lord's return and judgment? And if we think we are, which I do, I do definitely believe we're living in the last days, then what would, what should we be doing? We should be like Enoch, the godly Enoch, <laughs> who was a prophet with great fervency and urgency, who was trying to witness to the ungodly of his day that they needed to get right before judgment came. We need to be like Methuselah. We need to be like Noah, don't we? We need to be out there telling people that judgment is coming and that they need to get themselves right. You know, it's, it's still not too late, is it? One can still choose to be a son of Lamech and perish or a son of Noah and live. Lamech had how many sons? How many did Noah have? Choose this day who you'd rather go with. <laughs> 